This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we're speaking with Diana Beresford Kroger. Diana is a botanist, medical biochemist, and self-defined renegade scientist who brings together ethnobotany, horticulture, spirituality, and alternative medicine to reveal a path toward better stewardship of the natural world. Orphaned in Ireland in her youth, Diana was educated by elders who instructed her in the Brehan knowledge of plants and nature, told she was the last child of ancient Ireland, and told to one day bring this knowledge to a troubled future. Diana has done exactly that. Her bioplan is an ambitious plan, encouraging people to develop a new relationship with nature, to join together to replant the global forest. Her books include The Sweetness of a Simple Life, The Global Forest, Arboretum Borealis, Arboretum America, and A Garden of Life. Diana Beresford Kroger was included as a Wings World Quest Fellow in 2010 and named one of Utney Reader's World Visionaries for 2011. And here's part two. I'm just mesmerized by every subject that you've been able to expound on so passionately and thoroughly and one thing that we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation was the forest of the oceans and as we've been meandering through the lush mythologically imbued forest of the land as you said the forests of the ocean are equally significant on our earth so I'm wondering if you can take us there to the invisible forest in the oceans made up of phytoplankton why they're so indispensable, and how cutting trees on land is also detrimental to marine communities. Oh my God, yes. Now, first of all, 
just let me ask the public to try to identify mucus fasciculosis. And you do have it going all the coast of California and on the east coast. It's called fucus fasciculosis, and it is a brown algae. Please go out and try to identify that algae. It's a large algae. It's got bubbles on it. It's on the seashore. And you clean that off, and you use that as a swab on your skin in September, in the end of August for the west coast of, of America, and September for the east coast of America. You take that and swab it on your skin. What you have in that algae are conceptacles. The conceptacles are full of iodine. They're the fertile part of the fucus fasciculosis. The iodine is released as a water-soluble iodine onto your skin, and it enhances your thyroid and your parathyroids. And it is like putting oil into an engine. It's also protective for all of your systems. It's an ancient, ancient Celtic remedy for revving up your body and giving your body a really good deal for getting through the following winter. And it's health protection for all kinds of colds and flus and everything. Okay, so let us go back now to, to the forest of the oceans. In the oceans, you have what's known as the invisible forest. These are all kinds of algae, and sometimes on the California coast, they're enormous, and they grow to about a foot a day, and they are called microcystes, cordales. They are enormous, and all of the otters, the sea otters, swing up these algae, and they go up 20, 30, 40 feet. They're huge. And all of the mammals love those and use them, and the fish are, are set on the place of these algae, and um, they are just fantastic. But they have to have specific growing conditions in the ocean. And what happens is that the great forests of the west coast of North America, they suck up iron out of the soil. All soils all over the world are rich in iron. All seas all over the world are poor in iron. And the algae in the sea waits for iron to be brought into the water around them to switch on the nitrogenase enzymes that are necessary for the building of protein, for protection and division of the algae babies to be made. So how this happens is that a tree grows and it's lollygagging along growing and it produces a leachate. And the leachate comes from the fallen leaves. It comes from the compost of the leaves. It comes from the bark. It comes from the periderm of the bark all the way down into the water. And the leachate carries a very large molecule with it. And that molecule is a chelating molecule. It's called fulvic acid. And the fulvic acid is a huge thing. It's like, um, it's almost a million in molecular weight. It's a great big giant of a molecule, even though you don't see it with your own eyes. And it pulls iron out of the soil. It cradles the iron molecules in the water out to the sea. And when you see fresh water from the land, and it's always produced by means of the forests, that fresh water carries iron from the forests out into the seawater. And it's at those inlets that you always notice these brown algae. You always notice all kinds of sea life there. That is the interface between the sea 
and the land. And the iron is carried farther out into the great columns of maybe 200 feet long columns in the oceans, that's from the top of the ocean down to the bottom of the ocean, of microalgae, and these are teeny, weeny, weeny, weeny algae, the cordales, camasiphonales, all of those different classes of little algae that are set in depth depending on their DNA. And if the DNA is very great, they're down at the bottom. If the DNA is not so great, they're farther up to the top. And they use the iron and they grow and they get bigger and bigger. And that feeds the fish. And the fish are fed, feeds the mammals. And the mammals are fed like the great whales come there. And that's why the mother whale pushes her calf towards the side of the ocean, that side of the ocean where there's greater feeding. So without the trees, there would be no iron chelation. Without the iron chelation, there would be no great forests, invisible forests in the ocean. That we look out in the ocean, we don't even know they're there. But the iron feeds that forest. And the forest, that forest, oxygenates the ocean itself. Because believe it or not, fish need oxygen. Believe it or not, Marine mammals need oxygen. Believe it or not, all of the sharks and the whales need oxygen. So that's how it happens.
as you're describing this, you know, incredible <laughs> tapestry and process of the forest and the oceans, I am lucky enough to live in the Pacific Northwest, very close to the ocean, and can visualize the interconnection that the yeah. forest and the ocean play together. Now, going into this thought process of forest restoration, the forest has been such a commodity. Most of the global forest is an industrial logging nightmare with the majority of forest overcrowded, even aged and monocropped or left as a devastating clear cut. Still, the pesticides and the pesticides. Mm -hmm. And so the second and third growth forests, you know, they're not plantations, but they also don't have the biodiversity of the old growth ecosystems. So I'm wondering, how do you suggest we approach these forests in flux? Do you think it's worthwhile to take on the huge feat of thinning to provide more space to plant more biodiversity? Or should we begin building topsoil on barren clear cuts? Or just where should we focus our energy within this huge job of forest restoration? Well, what you start doing is, if you don't have much money, I, I call it epicenter forests, okay? So if you, and most people don't have, have a lot of money, you put in one very valuable tree. Like for where you're living, it would be, a, it would be perhaps a red cedar or a sequoia, some one of the, the, the varietals of sequoia, um, you would put that in and protect that one. And then you start planting other species around it. Like, for instance, you would put in uh, any, any native species that you can think of and put that around it and space it and just let it go, let it go into nature. And the birds will look after it. You know, the birds will plant seeds too. Um, there will be pollination from butterflies because none of us have this kind of money that we can actually take the pattern of the ancient forest and redo it. Like, for instance, the ancient forest patterns, nobody has written about them. I've been trying to find what kind of climbers go into those forests, like climbing plants I'm talking about, what kind of cornaceous plants go in, all kinds of things. So we have to do a second best, really, because... We can't do the perfect thing again. It's, it's pretty well impossible to do. But you start with one good tree. One good healthy tree goes in and around that, then you have, like for instance, around you, you may have species of camphor that you might want to put in. Or, if, for instance, if you want to put in a nut tree plantation, you have to have the canopy exposed to the sun. If you want to grow nut trees, forget it if you don't have an open canopy to the sun because the nut tree sucks up as much sun as you can imagine. And if there's shade on the canopy of the nut tree, you won't have nuts. So there's a certain amount of a knowledge that you have to have, and that knowledge I've put into a huge app to go with all of the trees of North America. So when the film comes out, that's the call of the forest, the sacred wisdom of trees, there's also a huge monster app to go with that. So you will be able to get all of the direction that you will need from just going to that app. Well, I am just jumping for joy waiting for that app because I'm sure I will be on it day and night um, walking the forest and 
learning how to tend the wild. And, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and in the app, I mean, this has never been done before. It's to the benefit of the planet, to the benefit of climate change. It is to the benefit of biodiversity. And if you key in all of those things for your one particular tree, you could get all the answers to that. Also, the growing zones, how it will grow, how fast it will grow, what kinds of trees to not put close to the foundations of your house, the kinds of trees that will withstand traffic, that won't withstand traffic. All of those questions are answered in in this app. All of the trees that I have been able to put together for North America, now it comes into money. I don't have the money to put together an app for, let's say, Europe. I don't have the ability to put an app for India, but I have done the app for North America. And maybe, please God, somebody will come up to the plate and say, here, Diana, um, here's whatever sum of money is needed to to get a group of people going to put the app together, maybe somebody will come up and offer to be the patron for the app for something else. And in this app, I also have, if you have a child that has asthma, there are certain species you have to grow to protect the child. If you have children or or people in the house who have cancer, there are certain species you should expose yourself to. So also the medicines of the forest are connected into the app, you know. Um, if you're designing in a garden and you want to put into the garden a weeping form of a tree or something like that, you know, if you want to have an extremely beautiful garden as well as something that's really, you know, really working for the climate too. I mean, because you can do both things together, then I have those suggestions there. I mean, it took me a year to do that app and I had to write a book of scientific thinking to go with it. For instance, in our ordinary Webster's dictionaries, there aren't definitions of things like cloud seeding. There aren't definitions for many, many things, and I've put all those definitions into the app to make them really, really simple. Quantum physics, simple as simple as possible. So it's easy to understand. Amazing. Um, and I will be very excited when that comes out and promote it on my end and of course and um but just to go back to the question of thinning because i know that is a large restoration tool being used right now do you see thinning as a sustainable or beneficial practice in second and third growth forest i know what you're saying actually you know um it's a very expensive thing to do Mm mm-hmm um, thinning is very expensive, and if you are going to thin, it's perfectly okay to go in and thin and take the smaller species out and to actually run them through a mulching machine or something, because they're doing this in Germany, actually, and spread that on the floor, and then you increase the quality of the forest floor as of itself. And I know that's what you've asked me. But in some senses, now let's go back to to the old thinking of hybrid vigor, all right? So you have two phenotypes coming together and they're producing because all of them will have this different phenotype epigenetics. So some, one or many of the trees that are within that plantation that you're talking about will have a boosted, stronger immune system and will be able to outgrow its many companions. And if you look at a plantation, as I have had the time to do that, you will find some of the trees become more dominant. 
Now, it appears to me to be that there is also a conversation going on in the forest, a conversation between species. And I will ask you to do an experiment this way. If you put 10 equal seeds into a pot of soil, you will find our 10 equal bulbs into a pot of soil. One becomes dominant. Our two might then, uh, mostly one becomes dominant. It seems to me that there is a conversation going on between the root systems by way of almost an immune system between all of the plants to decide that one gets dominance. Now, I know that that has never been looked at scientifically. I know that that has not been thought about scientifically as a chemical conversation that takes place in the soil. I know that. But I think and I have seen that phenomenon happen in the forest. So you're asking me something that I don't have a 100% answer for. And I don't know if any of the U.S. forestry people have an answer for that. And I don't even know if those experiments have been done. But if there's any kids out there that want to do a master's degree, I think that would be an excellent master's degree to do. And I think it should be done with all of the species that are being used in logging right now. Well, thank you for going in depth with that, because it's definitely been a question on my mind as I walk these forests that are struggling in some ways to come back, but nonetheless are vigorous. I want to make a comment to you about something else, about um, the unity of being. Now, we're going into um, a philosophy, uh, a whole different set of thinking here. If you as a person, I don't wish this on you, but let's say if you broke your leg, okay, and your leg was a tiny bit shorter, all right, because of that break, the body adjusts itself. The body has a knowledge of unity. Each organ has a knowledge of unity. The tree itself has a knowledge of unity. There is a thinking of unity within the tree. Let's say, for instance, if you have a poor summer, there will be less crop on the tree. There is a phenomenon of chemical communication that takes place. I think it takes place within our body. I think it takes place within the trees. The genome of a tree is greater than the human genome. So it has every bit of capacity to be able to do that. There is, there is also something in the phenomenon of life that around that question of unity that we do not understand and I know also has never been looked at. Feel
Come quick into the now you hear Cutting off from closer years Bounding into heavy pouring sound Come quick into the icy sting Sharpening to everything Pounding boundaries brought up the financial dilemmas and clear cutting is pretty universally condemned but selective logging is generally more acceptable but i was reading a document by the union of concerned scientists on tropical deforestation and they point out selective logging in pristine forest often end up destroying the forest completely anyways whether the forest is robbed of key trees, fragmented by access roads leading to other exploitative activities such as extraction, mining, overhunting, which disturbs seed dispersal, um, herbivory patterns, and leads to further harm. And the money from the timber is often funneled into clearing for agriculture. So what are some economically feasible alternatives to chopping down trees that don't interrupt the delicate balance of complex forest systems? Let's look at the planet, all right? Yeah, I will give you an answer to that. The forests of Brazil, the forests of America, the forests of the boreal system, the forests of Malaysia, the forests of Australia, Tasmania, up on the east coast of Australia, they perform an ecosystem and an eco-function 
for the whole of the planet. Those forests reduce pollution on a global scale. They oxygenate the planet on a global scale. It would behoove us to pay the people of the Brazilian forests, the people of the boreal, the people of other great forests, as a taxation from us to them to keep them going because they have an eco-function for the planet and not cut them off and not put roads in and not do mining in these areas, but keep the forests as they stand because the function of the forest for the great oceans and for the atmosphere have a greater effect on all of us and all of our health sitting in the ground. And I add my name to those scientists because they're absolutely right. We need to have funding, global funding, maybe a global community to take care of this. Absolutely. You're so right. We need a global strategy of earth stewardship to keep the great forest standing at any cost. And unfortunately, money is still the universal language. So in terms of economics... You've written quite a bit about the astounding health benefits of nuts and the famine protection nut trees offer. So do you see that, i.e. perennial agriculture, as an economic alternative for the purveyors of deforestation? Or where are the opportunities to sort of derail the timber industry's rampage and inject this ethic into the situation? I would think that the logging companies should put money into R&D. I think they should put money into somatic cloning because I know that this has not happened in this way. They should put money into special trees that have super long fibers, that the fibers can last for reuse and reuse of paper. Um, The phenomenon of that is there, actually, and I suggest they put money into that and put aside forests as a bioplanned forest for the production of paper they themselves be in responsible for that and not take down wild forests. I mean, we do need wood, we do need paper, but we have to apply our intelligence to it. And by cloning, um, and I'm talking about somatic cloning, I'm not talking about GMO trees, I'm talking about somatic clones, which are like taking a piece of your own skin, and that has the DNA identity of you. I'm not talking about changing you, I'm talking about doing hybrid vigor and also somatic cloning of really special trees because they are out there. I have identified some of these species. Taking them, cloning them, using them as cloned forests for industry. And maybe they can get grants for sequestering the atmosphere of carbon dioxide as well as their industrial monies coming in. But the idea of taking down all the virgin forests with all of the species, the biodiversity that goes with it, then poisoning the soil with pesticides, poisoning the oceans with pesticides, is simply not in right now. We have too many people on this planet, and we have to have a sustainable method of looking after things. It's not just I will say that. Fairly soon, all the people on the planet will be saying this. So we've got to use our heads and we've got to have some global thinking about this. And one person with a greedy eyeball cannot be that person who decides everything for everybody. It can't go that way. Well, I'm in total agreement with you. And 
what comes to mind is the Tongass National Forest in Alaska. And this incredible old growth temperate rainforest has been cut down for years for toilet paper and paper pulp. And it's so heart-wrenching because they are still logging for the next 10 years. Yeah, but it's not mm -hmm. even good paper pulp. No. We cannot sell off the growth rights of these trees that we as a whole, uh, as a whole global community need for toilet paper. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's like taking a baby and giving birth to a child and feeding the child some kind of sticky, sweet fluid and expecting the child to grow and be healthy and good. You can't do it. I mean, it's illogical at the very best. And what it is, is we're all standing silent. We're all standing and we're being silent witnesses to these things that are happening when everybody knows this is a really stupid thing to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that these people can't have, you know, the pulp that they need. Well, go and grow the pulp and then you'll find how valuable it is and recycle everything. Then you'll find how valuable it is. If you put your elbow grease into the growing of the trees, then you might have a little bit more respect for what you're cutting down. Yes. And what would you say the most critical tree species are to repopulate depleted forests with, especially going into climate chaos? And, of course, each bioregion will be different. So if you could speak to a few different bioregions. Well, I have in the, in the app. I have identified all the bioregions in the app. And wherever you are, actually, there is a geopositioning for wherever you are for the app, and then you know what kind of trees to grow. That's a very wide question. And they're the dominant species, like for Europe, it would be Quercus rober. Um, for the, the West Coast here, one of the species would be the Quercus macrocarpa, the bar oak. And really, honestly, I think in California, one of them that should be one of the most important species is the Quercus douglasii, your blue oak. And why I think the blue oak is very important for the base of the Sierra Nevada hills is that its blue character can reflect sun in a different way. And those trees are much more drought resistant. So we're looking at really, really strong droughts and increasing droughts for California. And that species will, will actually withstand that and actually help to, to cope with the drought. So it's a that's a huge question, actually, that I think would take me hours to answer. But the answers are there in the app. Yes, of course, I, I did realize that. And <laughs> I this is another large question, but hopefully a bit more directed. E.O. Wilson, who you've mentioned, is proposing yeah. his much-anticipated new book, Half Earth, that will set aside half the planet to be free of modern human activity and development, as I understand it. Yeah. And in North America, we are lucky enough to have a big head start with large chunks of the Rocky Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, and the Northern Boreal Forest relatively yeah. intact. And you've written a book, Arboretum Borealis, about the importance of boreal forests for climate stabilization and health. So how do you see boreal forests contributing to a global conservation plan? And what are your thoughts about Half-Earth? First of all, for the boreal forest, if the boreal forest comes down, there will be so much tonnage of carbon into the air that we will have difficulty having oxygen also in the atmosphere. Our oxygen levels will go very, very, very low because we have carbon not just in the trees. We have the ability to pick up nitrogen 
in the in the lichen formation on the forest floor, the trees of the boreal are all covered with lichens, and lichens have a very very distinct effect on the atmosphere. They actually clean the atmosphere. And then we have the benthic regions of the boreal forest, which are the forest, the accumulation of carbon to carbon, the phenolic graves that are up there, which are of immense, immense area. And they have not been broken down. And so if that forest comes down, the sunlight will go on that, and then the phenolic graves will be broken down. The amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, I think, would be very, very difficult to measure. It would create havoc for this planet. So I think the boreal forest has got to be protected, and I've actually been active in doing that in part of the Canadian boreal forest system. Now, with regard to what E.O. Wilson says, half and half, it used to be long ago here, when I came here, the old farmers had the idea of a third and a third and a third, right? I mean, it's kind of going with what E.O. is saying. A third for me, a third for the wildlife, and a third to go ruin. And that was the ratio for the old ratio for North America. So I would say his idea is a darn good one. I'm looking forward to his book. Um, I think it's one way to go. Yeah, it is an interesting way to think about it, especially as more and more people are moving into urban areas and a lot of farmland and rural countryside is being abandoned in some ways. And Oh, um, it's not being abandoned. Hmm. You've got the big farmers, you've got the industrial farmers coming in, and the industrial farmers are draining the soil, and they're putting huge drainage tiles into the soil. And what that is doing is activating the movement of water out of the soil, and that's going into the streams and the rivers, and it's carrying a pile of pesticides with it. That's going out into the great oceans, and it is the nitrogen in that water from the soil is actually adding to the nitrogen of the oceans, which in turn is causing graveyards of the sea. And that is causing algal blooms. The algal blooms are producing toxic material. It is very, very bad in the Gulf of Eden. And um, the algal blooms are then attacked by bacteria, which kill down the algal blooms. And then you have a high-toxic, huge high toxic area of the ocean. That means an ocean area without oxygen and the fish start to go through there and then there's what we know as a fish kill. All the fish die in that area. And the numbers and areas of the ocean being affected by that type of industrial farming is phenomenal. And it is kind of the secret of the planet and it's growing at a very high rate. Yeah, you point your finger, you point your finger to these farming practices. We have to live sustainably. We only have a limited set of land. Um, This is our home. We have so much here. It is not an infinite planet. It is a finite planet for every single mineral, for every tree, for all the trees, for all the ocean, for all the soils. So we've got to be sensible, all of us. And what do you see as a sensible form of agriculture for the growing population? Well, they did it in Cuba, you know. I mean, in Cuba, they brought in organic methods. This is many years ago. And people started growing their own veggies. And they were hungry for a while. Their calorific intake was reduced. But we can have our own gardens. We can grow our own veggies. We can also buy some of them, swap them, barter, 
and that's one way of doing it. And and also an idea that I have that I'd love to if I had money I would love to put it into action is micro is micro robotic systems for our gardens. Let's say for instance you could plant one acre of, of corn or one acre of, of wheat, a Durham wheat, let's say for instance, and grow enough for yourself, for your flower, for your house. I mean and put out the, the, the robot out there, just switch on the solar power on it and get it to cut and harvest that batch of wheat. We can do these things. I mean, they're fairly simple to do. There are lots of robots in Japan. It's just a matter of having imagination. We have to have imagination around the questions that we are asking and have imagination for our answers. And you know, we have it, you have it, I have it. The kids out there are phenomenal. We've got some really smart kids out there on the horizon. We've got to support them with education. So it's kind of what goes around comes around. It's not the wealthiest kids who have the smartest ideas. It's the ones who, you know, kind of grovel along and have a really tough time. They are the most imaginative kids. Einstein said that for a scientist, the most, the greatest gift any scientist can offer the world is his imagination or her imagination. And in science, if you don't have imagination, just go off and do something else. Because it is the art of science that is so important. And he really understood that. And as a matter of fact, so does E.O. Wilson. Well, I love that you bring up children and respect their instinctual wisdom. And uh, just, I've read that you made the observation that children naturally object to the harming of trees and see very plainly the madness of cutting these beings that they see as friends. And it yeah. seems that um, as children, we have an innate love of the forest and the natural world. And somewhere along the way, for some of us, that that turns off or something happens where we lose that uh, intimate connection and the love. Mm-hmm. A child, a child, I think, has a greater sensitivity and sensibility to infrasound. I think a child's eyes, one day after they're born, I think we undergrade them. We don't give them the degree of intelligence that they do have and the ability to learn that they have. We don't, as a society, pick them up and give them all of the things that they need to be given. And I'm not talking about the rich people's children. I'm talking about everybody's child is really the responsibility of all of the community. And for children now, it's the community of the world. And we need to hold them up. And while they are very young, they are already in love with nature because they hear things and know things that we don't still understand. A child, a baby, will recognize the gender of another child by its cry male or female, even though you may not be able to figure it out, a kid can do it. They are extraordinary. But we have all of the blending of our children, all the races and blending. That's hybrid figure. That means our kids are really seriously smart now. So we should pull up our sleeves and kind of go to it and educate them. And I think we'll come out with some wonderful, fabulous answers from all of them. Where is my harmony? Where is my friend? 
the conversation back to the bio plan as I'm so grateful that your solutions are not only philosophical and you do give people actual tangible solutions like planting trees for everyone every single person planting a tree and I just want to just reach out to the people in urban centers because I have had some urbanites talk to me and feel a bit excluded because they don't have access to land for gardens even. So I just want to maybe give a note of how every person 
can be included in the reforestation of our world and any tips for people that don't have access to their own land but can still be involved and fruitful in this process? Well, I think we have to have urban forests. Um, in Ottawa here, our ash trees are all dying. And um, a couple of years ago, I was instrumental in pulling together the money, and I didn't take anything for it for the city to read Canopy the City, but that's an opportunity to actually put in trees that are really significantly important in a city, and I look upon them as the urban forest. Now, my last book, The Sweetness of a Simple Life, I've got a full one-third part of that book on the urban forest, and the urban forest is very, very important. I think people living in an urban environment can participate in this, I think the trees can be put in. They're being put in really in all over the world as serious forested area. It's not really happened too much in the United States, but it will happen. And I think people have a hand in the trees and the forests around them. Now, all cities have park areas, and the parks can be replanted into forested systems. You know, you have the Central Park in uh, New York, and I call that, I don't call it Central Park, I call it Liberty Park, because you go into Liberty Park and people feel free. It is an actual phenomenon to me to see people playing music in these parks and doing all the things they want to do. Everybody needs a place to go and roll around in the grass. So I think it's the city fathers that these people need to talk about. And if some areas are taken down in the city, leave them as grassy areas, leave them as forested areas. The people in cities have more power than what they think. Well, that's a good reminder to uh, get people out of their apartments and connecting back to the trees around them and showing some love and gratitude for the courageous plants and birds and pollinators that go into the cities. Yeah, yeah. The concrete jungle can be redesigned. It absolutely can be redesigned. But what's happened in the last 50 years is nobody was thinking in terms of pattern language. Nobody was thinking in terms of the pattern of life for a city. Because the more beauty and the more trees you have in a city, the better the people will be. The less criminal behavior there will, there will be and the more buying happens for the shopkeepers and for the, for the businesses of the city. So it's a win-win situation for all around within the city itself. And I see no reason why there can't be an urban forest. I can't see any reason why there wouldn't be an urban uh, a city forest. So it's, it's a matter of turning on your heel and looking around you and seeing what can I do to help here. And I do realize and I do recognize, and I'm not being flippant, that a lot of people living in cities seriously want to help, to help the global forests. And I think maybe you can and will be able to do that in the future. I don't have the magic plan for you right now, but I think it might be coming. Well, again, we'll all be looking forward to any plan and vision that you have because you are such a wellspring of of the future. And I'm so grateful to speak with you and to have this time. And I don't know if you would like to end on anything or if you feel good about where we've gone, but I'm just completely floored by everything you've said. Well, I, I would like for people to I would like for people to read Arboretum America, a philosophy of the forest. I would like them to read 
Aubrey's Borealis, A Lifeline of the Planet. I would like them to read The Global Forest and The Sweetness of a Simple Life because the sweetness of a simple life is simplifying your life. We can do marvelous things with simple way of thinking. You can be rich in what you don't want. So you don't have to go out and buy them. Go to the library, get them out of the library, and just lollygag through those books. And you will find there's some really good health tips for you that are very, very cheap. Then there's also the Garden for Life for people who love gardening. And you can just lollygag through them and pick up tips, and they will help you in your life. And that's what I can offer you. I'm offering it to you from here, from my garden, and really from my heart. Well, I feel your heart so vibrantly. Thank you, Diana. (laughs) You're welcome. You're so welcome. And we will be holding hands all across the world. Yes, yes. I I think we're going to be, we're under the radar. We're going to pop our heads up and it's going to surprise a lot of politicians. (laughs) Mm, Well, I like the sound of that. (laughs) I like the sound of that a lot. Yes, we are. Mm -hmm. Travel in the world. Thank you for listening to this continuation of a talk with Diana Beresford Kroger on Unlearn and Rewild. I'm Ayana Young, broadcasting from the redwood forests of Mendocino, California, at the site of a project deeply inspired by Diana's work and the work of others. And that is a native plants and fungi reserve and propagation initiative to protect the future of the ancient forests and their genetic vitality. We are planning large-scale restoration programs with carefully selected genotypes from old-growth mother trees, as Diana calls them, which are unfortunately the first to fall on behalf of the timber industry. This is an open-source, grassroots movement, and you can join us by going out and finding the last mother trees still standing in your area and gathering their seeds, then caring for those seedlings and sharing them in your communities. 
and sharing this burning vision to replant the global forests. And beyond your communities, if you can, join the efforts to conserve what precious little intact ancient forest we have left. This summer, March and I are focusing on the incredibly significant ancient coastal rainforest in Alaska that are being cut as we speak. We will be filming a documentary short and bringing more international attention to this area, which is a treasure chest of forest wisdom and a unique wildlife arc. If you listen hard, you may be able to hear the thunderclap of those trees and all the dear mother trees coming down. For all who draw breath, this is our unifying call, the call of the forest. Sign up for our mobilized newswire to stay abreast of these initiatives and others. And please donate if you can, not only to help this radio program continue, but also to support this native plant nursery and birth. I'd like to thank our producer, March Young, and all whose music we heard, beginning with the humpback whale, recorded 45 years ago by Dr. Roger Payne, Leafcutter John with the song, Let It Begin, Linda Perhacks with The Call of the River, Angel Olson with The Tiniest Seed, and Kate Wolf with our theme song, Like a River. We'll be back next week for a conversation with the Green Party candidate for President of the United States. Like a river